words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. Today we heard Luke's grand story of Pentecost. A grand story with lots of special effects. Wind and flames and people speaking in languages they didn't know they knew. Luke really puts out, pulls out the stops on this one. And it captures our imagination, doesn't it? It's a story we know well. So well that I'm sure you could just retell it to your neighbour and get all the details right. So I'm going to invite you to do that. See how many of those details of the story that you know so well you can remember. So if you'd like to turn to your neighbour for about 30 seconds and kind of work out how the story went, who's involved, where they are, and what, who says what. All right, where you go. Right, see how you got on. So how does it start? They're all gathered together, so who were gathered together? Well, we get to the languages, but before we get the language, who were gathered together in one place? Well, there's people from all, all over the place, but not people from all over the place right at the beginning of the story. The apostles. So, people like that. Men. Is anyone else there? Or is it just the apostles? Well, Luke doesn't tell us. He just says they were all gathered in one place, but... Who can tell me, or who knows, the two previous stories that might tell us who was gathered in one place? <laughs> so the two previous stories, well, one of them's not really a story, one's just a description of how the early community worked, and then the next story is the gathering of 120 to elect Matthias as Judas's replacement. So, and then... Luke goes on to say they were all gathered in one place. So it's probably more than the 12 apostles. It's probably 120. And Luke, when he describes the gathering of the people, said that the apostles gathered with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and some of the significant women and other believers. And so, oh, look, it's already flipped over on its own. So often you will find, especially in the old pictures, um, Mary is at the centre and Mary is the one receiving the Spirit, and the Spirit is then kind of sent out to the others through her. So there are a lot of men in that one. This one, Mary's at the centre again, but you can see the woman at the front kneeling. Oh, this is on a timer. Who knew that? Uh, and then the men are gathered around. And then this one here, which is a more modern one again, Mary is at the centre with two women and the men gathered beneath them. So obviously the next ones are just going to flick up. So where were they gathered? In Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, anywhere in particular? 
Actually, we don't know. Luke doesn't say. But uh, he just says they were all gathered in one place. But actually, a lot of people assume, they assume it was the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles, and that they were in the room where everything had happened before, in that upper room where everything was assumed to have happened behind locked doors. And I'm pretty sure I've said something like that in the past. But actually, Luke doesn't say that. He just says they were all gathered, and before that he's been talking about 120 in one place. So it would have to be a pretty big room to hold 120 people in it. So it's very unlikely it was where any of that other story happened. But they were all together in one place, maybe not even in a room, just in a covered area outside. I mean, 120 people is a lot of, a lot of people. And uh, we know that they often gathered in the temple precincts because that was the place of worship. So they would gather in one place in the temple precincts. So maybe the story actually isn't set in an upper room somewhere. It was actually set in the temple, which makes a lot more sense for what happens in the rest of the story, doesn't it? Now, I do all of that just to kind of show that when we read Bible stories, we bring assumptions to it. And that's, that's made worse by the fact that we have um, broken up the Bible story the, like the Gospel of Luke or the, or the Book of Acts, and we've broken up into little stories, and we, we never read it from beginning to end. And in fact, they were written to be heard from beginning to end, not to be broken up into little stories. And so we miss everything that goes on before and afterwards, and so we bring our assumptions and our ignorance to these stories. Now, even if we heard it from the beginning to end, we would still bring assumptions to how we read the story. And the reality is we all bring different assumptions. So there would be people who would hear the story who would hear immediately that there were women present. They wouldn't expect it was just the 12 apostles. And um, so their immediate assumption is different from ours. And those assumptions mean that when we read Bible stories... We often interpret them very differently because we bring different assumptions. And no one of those readings is different. It just means that we are bringing different assumptions to the story. The, other, the flip side of that is that the writers also had assumptions. And, they, and cultural kind of stories that lay behind those things that they could just kind of point to with a word or a phrase that mean nothing to us. Like we read that word or phrase and we get nothing from it. And we just kind of carry on missing this, as one person described it, this iceberg that lies beneath that, those Bible stories. And so again, that means that when we read those stories, sometimes we end up with a completely different meaning than how the original writers ever intended it to. Because we don't get the cultural assumptions and the assumptions of the writer that are implicit in that story. So it means reading the Bible is a lot more difficult than some people make out. A lot of people say, look, it just says that, it's very plain, it's in plain English, we should just go with that. But actually, well, plain English, it was written in Greek and Hebrew for a start, so it's, always, it's already carrying all the translator's assumptions, and we, we, there's all those other assumptions at work as well. So reading scripture is a lot more difficult than we make out. So what happens next? In the story. 
we have 120, 12, a whole lot of people gathered in a place somewhere, and then... Hmm? Oh, well, there's a bit before that. Well, they can't start speaking languages, but there's a bit before that. The clues up there, really. The spirit comes. That's right. So there's a noise that sounds like the wind. And then there are tongues that look like flames or like flames. So this is all Luke trying to paint a picture. Um, and we then kind of say, oh, well, it was tongues of flame and there was a sound of wind. But, I mean, it's all kind of metaphor, really. Luke's trying to describe something that's beyond description. And as a result of that, all these people start speaking. And the word in tongues is a difficult one because we immediately think it's glossolalia, which means it's just some kind of babble language, which God and you understand. But this is actually people are speaking languages the languages of the people gathered in Jerusalem. So it's dialect of Hebrew, dialect of Aramaic, and a few other languages, probably dialect of Greek, actually. So Greek's the common language across the Roman Empire at this point, not, not Latin. So, um, so it's a bit different from what Paul's talking about, the speaking of tongues later on. And it's the sound that attracts people. So whether it's the sound of the wind or the sound of all these languages being spoken by, and if it's that noisy, it probably is 120 people, people come to find out what the commotion is all about. And then they realise they can actually hear what they're saying in their own language, in their own dialect, which is... Like if you're overseas in a place where they don't speak your language and suddenly you find somebody who can, that's an amazing thing, isn't it? And when you can hear that message in your language, which carries all the kind of little words that go with your language, like our dialect of English has all these words in it that don't exist anywhere else. And I'm sure Diane and David can tell you how hard it is to understand New Zealanders, even though technically we speak the same language. And then we just drop some of these terms and some of these words that have no meaning to them. And they can do the same to us. To actually have those present in what the disciples are saying is an amazing thing. And then, then Peter, then the question is asked, what does this mean? And Peter responds by giving a speech based on Joel 2, 28-32a. Now I say the word based because it's not a translation. It's not a um, direct quote. He makes a few little changes. So, and it is thought that Luke actually did that deliberately. He would have had the Greek version of the Old Testament, the First Testament available. So everyone was kind of operating off the Septuagint. It's called the Septuagint because... In Alexandria, somebody wanted a version of the, of the First Testament, which was written in Hebrew. They wanted it in Greek, so they gathered 70 rabbis. And over 70 days, they translated all of that book into Greek. And at the end of that 70 days, all of the translations were exactly the same. That's how the story goes. And so it's called the Septuagint. And that is the authoritative Greek version of the First Testament. 
And that's the version that the New Testament writers were working from. You can tell that by some of it, because there are a few little changes that happened in that translation. But Luke, Luke changes even some of those. And so some of those changes were, he started with, in the last days. But actually the Septuagint says, and, and if you read it in your Bible, it says, after these things. So not about the last days at all. What happens before that is a little bit last days-ish, but it's not necessarily about the last days. But look, but Peter, well Luke, through Peter, kind of says this is about the last days. And slaves gets changed to my slave. So in, the, in Joel it's just the slaves will be able to do whatever slaves do. But in, when Peter's saying it, it's my slaves. God, God kind of either narrows down that group of people from all slaves just to this group of slaves, or God is saying all slaves are my slaves. They are pulled under, his, under God's mantle. Or it's talking about a completely different group of people altogether, and, and the kind of socioeconomic group of people's slaves is being sloughed off and, and they're talking about something completely different. And then, right at the end, Luke has Peter saying, I will pour out my spirit. That's in the original Joel. And then Peter goes on, which is not in the original Joel, so that they shall prophesy. That's not in there. He just added that. So what is Luke doing? Is he kind of misquoting? Well, most people think not. Nor is he correcting. He's actually... He's adding to the prophet's old words to fit a new situation that he has placed Peter in. Peter is answering the question, what does this mean? And he is using the words of Joel to say what it means, but he is changing them slightly so that he can give the answer to what does this mean. Joel's original words find new meaning in this new situation given what has happened. And what has happened is God has shown God's self through Jesus' deeds and life and death and resurrection. This is a new situation and so the old words need to be changed slightly to make sense of this new situation. So what then is prophecy? According to Peter, all of this, Pentecost, is all about prophecy. Well, when we use the word prophecy, we kind of have it in our heads that it's about predicting the future. We have kind of Nostradamus, he predicted the future, and people go through the Bible because that's all about prophesying, prophesying, it's about prophecy, and they say, oh, well, this is pointing to this event, and this is pointing to this event, and Revelations is a great source of pointing to things in the future that are now coming to pass although they probably came to pass multiple times in the past as well. But in fact, that's not a biblical understanding of prophecy. Prophecy in the, in the Bible was about people seeing the world through God's eyes and answering the question, what does this mean, this present situation? What's happening? What does it mean? So if you read the prophets... Most of the time, they're talking about what is happening right now and what it means. And then they might say, because of that, this is going to happen as the likely end point of all of this. But the main point of what they're talking about is what is happening now. 
And they describe it from God's perspective. And in essence, they are answering the question, what does it mean? And we can see that in Peter's words. He begins by speaking to the present time. He's describing what is happening now. This has happened in Jesus. This is happening right now with the Spirit coming. And he's using images and passages from the past to help him do that. But he is talking about the present point of time. And then he looks to the future and says, well, this is going to happen, but this is the fulfillment of what's happening now. The now is the most important bit of what Peter's talking about. And in his talking, he is talking about, he is answering the question, what does this mean? This sound, this sound of people who are speaking in languages that you can understand, your language, your dialect, this is what this means. And the last part of it is that for Peter, it involved all of us, not just not just the apostles. I think there's a part of us that don't want to be involved in all of this Pentecost stuff. And so we say, oh, well, that was just the apostles. But if it was all the gathered community, the whole 120, then it was all of them. And given the number of languages that Josie did such a good job of naming in her reading, there was way more languages and dialects going on there than just 12 apostles. So it is the 120 that are involved here. All of them. All of them were involved. The Spirit was poured out on all the people across social boundaries, across education, across age, across socio-economic status. Even slaves were involved in this outpouring of the Spirit. Everyone And lastly, for Luke, in writing his book, the events of Pentecost weren't a one-off. They weren't something that happened 2,000 years ago that we can put things up in churches and say happy birthday to ourselves. It's an ongoing story. And in fact, we could describe the book of Acts, which is the Acts of the Apostles, as the ongoing story of the Acts of the Spirit continuing to work in the lives of the apostles and the gathered community in Jerusalem and then through Paul as the Spirit continues to work around the known world. All of that is the work of the Spirit. And that work continues on today. In our church's calendar today, we remember Pitipi Tomata Akura, he is one of the great missionaries of Aotearoa. And he is one of the most significant people in the formation of our diocese. So I'm sure you've all heard of him. And you can even tell me where he was a missionary to. Josie should be able to. Because she lived in that area for a long time. The East Coast. So he is the first of the believers of Ngāti Pirou. And so he is a very significant figure. His story is that in the 1820s he was a rangatira and he was uh, captured by Napui when they did their lethal raid down the east coast, a raid that still causes some tensions between Napui and Ngāti Pirou. 
hidden a car is um, one of my friends whose father was Honika. He's married to Napui, a uh, Napui woman, and when he went home and told some of his um, uncles and aunts that he was, Paya was from Napui, they were like, why are you marrying her? She's Napui. Can't you find a good woman from around here? So, yeah, he eventually won them over, but they weren't overly happy about it for a long time. Uh, he was taken back. Pitapi Tomatakura was taken back to Kerikeri, where he was a slave. And then in 1833, there are various stories about how it happened, but it would appear the Williamses were involved in as they were with lots of other freed slaves, getting these slaves freed, and they returned home. Now, while he was there, he had gone to the mission school, so life wasn't all hard for the slaves, and he'd learned to read and write, and, uh, but he'd shown no interest in Christianity at all, so he wasn't baptised while he was up there. But when he went back down to Ngāti Puro, he immediately began to teach and to preach, using some of the prayers that he'd learnt, because he'd had gone to church, using some of the scraps of Bible passages that were written down on scraps of paper and some of the himine that he had learnt while he was up there. Now his mana was greatly increased in 1836 when he was asked to lead a raid on Te Whānau Apanui over in Takaha. And he said, well these are my conditions. There'll be no wanton killing. Sure we're going for a battle, but there'll be no wanton killing. There'll be no cannibalism. We will not destroy the crops we will not destroy the, the waka, the canoes. We have to leave their food source. So we will exact Utu, but when Utu is exacted, we will stop and we will come home. So those conditions were accepted and they went over. During the battle, he fought with his musket in one hand and Paipata, the Bible, in the other hand. He was uninjured in the, in the fighting, which uh, led to great mana for him and for his message. Uh, there was no cannibalism, the waka were left alone, the crops were left alone, the fighting never got into the pa. Um, once the fighting outside the pa was finished, uh, the fighting was called to a halt, and Ngāti Pro went home. And that meant, left a lasting impression, not only on Ngāti Pro, who um, were impressed by the fact that he was uninjured, but on Te Whānau Apanui, who were amazed at the restraint. It could have been a massacre, but Ngāti Puro stopped, left the crops, left the waka. There was no cannibalism. And that restraint um, was the beginnings of their interest in the Gospels as well. Well, in 1837, a Ngāpui chief went down, went on a visit through the coast. The relationships were thawing a little bit, and um, he went back to... William Williams and Pai here, and he said, why are there no missionaries on the East Coast? And Williams said, why would there be? And, and the Snapui chief said, well, they hold services every day, and on Sundays there is no work. In some villages they sit still all day on Sunday, and in some villages they don't work on Saturdays as well, and some of them also sit still all day Saturday as well. The gospel has arrived, people are adhering to it. Why aren't there missionaries down there? So William Williams sailed down to the east coast, he visited the, the villages, and uh, so this is, I'll talk about this in a moment, and um, it's a little confusing whether he then trained up nine 
people who were up at Kerikeri to be catechists or whether he took nine young men back with him to train to be catechists who were then sent back to work with Piripiti Tomata Akura. Eventually, Williams himself went down and set up his mission station at Wairinga Hika, and that is the beginnings of our diocese, the Diocese of Waikū, whose beginnings are at this place. Around, this is a Tiki Tiki. Um, uh, Tomato Kura came from nearer the coast. This is on the Waipu River at a place called Rangitukia. And, uh, and his first sermons were in this area on the Waipu River. And that is why we have our name. The gospel was preached at Waipu, where Tomata Akura came from. And when the diocese was formed, Ngāti gave the name to the diocese, in a sense, to help us remember our story, that this man, at this place, sowed the seeds of the gospel. And if you go onto Ngāti websites, they talk about him and how their whakapapa changed because of him. They now link their whakapapa back to him. Because we often think about missionaries being European, they bring the gospel, Māori kind of get rid of their old ways, adopt new ways. But Ngāti say that did not happen there. When Tomato Kura came, they reframed for themselves their worldview and how their world worked. They asked, what does this mean? And they came up with their own answers. Sure, Pākehā missionaries came and changed that a little bit, but a lot of their priests were Māori. A lot of them descended from Tomato Akura. Nine out of 15 in the 1830s traced their whakapapa directly back to him. So he is an important figure for Ngāti Pro and he's an important figure for our diocese. And he is, for me, an example of somebody who shows what the story of Pentecost is about asking what does it mean and answering that question in new contexts using scripture to do that so the same uh, and so and that's the font inside St Mary's at Tiki Tiki uh, and that's Tomato Kura it's a, a symbol of um, the whakapapa. You are, you are baptised into the whakapapa of Tomata Akura, which goes back to Ihukraiti. Our task is the same as it was for the disciples and it was for Tomata Akura. The same, the same task we see in Peter. We are to be people who answer the question, what does it mean? In our words and our actions, we are to be people who help others understand what does it mean now. The importance of Pentecost Sunday is not what happened 2,000 years ago. The importance of Pentecost Sunday is what happens today. It's not about the things on the walls and the nice red flowers and the little flames on the, on the seats. It's actually how we continue that ministry of prophesying of answering what does it mean and just as on Pentecost Day it involves every single one of us in that task we are the ongoing story 
of Pentecost.